As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please help her to realize when the appropriate time to read novels is, is not during math class. And I can't really say that I learned my lesson. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 158. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, we have so much great content coming your way this season right here on the podcast and also on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. Check out modernmrsdarcy.com for lots of great book content and visit modernmrsdarcy.com slash subscribe to get updates delivered straight to your inbox. In episode 156, Michael and Smith inspired you to make your bookshelves beautiful. And today's guest, Whitney Connard, is going to inspire you to cast a critical eye toward the shelf that holds your unread books. If you have a gigantic pile of books that you own but haven't yet read looming somewhere in your house, Whitney totally gets you. Today, we're talking about her Instagram endeavor, The Unread Shelf Project, saying goodbye to reading shame, the right and not quite right times to read. And then at Whitney's invitation, I get to take a hard look at her unread shelf and help her decide from the bountiful selection of titles what she may enjoy reading next. Let's get to it. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thanks. I am ecstatic to be here. A little nervous, but mostly ecstatic. We'll be talking about books. This is your comfort zone. Yep. Well, I am so excited to talk to you today for a multitude of reasons, but before we jump in, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, where you live, what you do? Yeah. So I am a very happy resident of Kansas City and I'm married. I've got a one-year-old, a four-year-old. Um, I work part-time as a nurse with um, adolescents who are homeless, which will be interesting to see how that relates to some of the books that I read. And I've been pretty much reading, I think, since I came out of the womb. Books have been a huge part of my life. My childhood story is one time in school, probably during math lesson in like second grade, I got in trouble because I had the math book open on the desk, but I was also reading a book hidden in my lap. And my teacher came around and found me and was really perplexed on how to discipline me because I was reading a book, which was really good, but I was not doing my math homework. So always been known for trying to sneak reading in wherever I, wherever I can fit it. Do you remember what you were reading? 
Oh, it was probably a horse book. I mean, it's, like, <laughs> it's pretty much what all like that was a very, very large dominant phase of my elementary school years was um, horse literature. Uh, what did the teacher decide to do? Just kind of told me to put away. And then she talked to my parents about it. And it's just like, please help her to realize when the appropriate time to read novels is, is not during math class. And I can't really say that I learned my lesson. But. <laughs> Whitney, I've heard that there's quite a vibrant reading community in Kansas City from readers I know and also from one of our recent guests, Patience Randall. What's your experience there? Yeah, exactly. We actually have a lot of great readers here in Kansas City. I have a lot of personal friends that love books. And then when I joined the Bookstagram community almost a couple years ago, we actually started our own hashtag, KC Bookstagram. And through that, it kind of helped us to meet other readers. And we've had a meetup at a like a local coffee shop and just really got to connect with each other. And we do have some great indie bookstores, which Patience has you know talked about all of those before. Um, but also our, our library system is really amazing because we, Kansas City straddles two different states, Kansas and Missouri, as well as multiple counties. So I can access maybe four different library systems, which definitely opens up a lot of great possibilities for reading. That sounds delightful. Do you truly borrow books from all four systems? I don't do all four systems. There's two counties that are a little bit like just a farther drive, but Johnson County is the one that I actually live in. And that's where I get my physical books. But then also I use the Casey Moe's overdrive system. Mm -hmm. Johnson County uses a different system and I don't like it nearly as much, but the overdrive has been a lifesaver for any kind of digital material, especially when we were living overseas and I used it almost exclusively. I hear that living overseas is often a wonderful life-changing experience for many readers, but that it also can be very difficult on their reading lives just because they have to find new rhythms, new places to get books. Mm -hmm. They can't read what they're used to. What's your experience with living abroad? Yes. Yeah, so in 2011, my husband and I had been married for about a year and a half and he is a civil engineer and I'm a registered nurse and we really wanted to use our skills overseas. And so we applied and were accepted into an inter internship with a nonprofit organization. We call it NGOs, non-government organization, and eventually got a position managing clean water projects in rural Cambodia you know, wastewater systems, toilets, water filtration, all of that jazz. And then I also worked with a medical missionary doctor when I was there. Cambodia, I mean, as you heard from your recent guest, Chatty, I mean, Cambodia is just an amazing complex country. And we loved our three years there. But the city that we lived in, it was right on the border with Thailand and Cambodia. It was called Poipet. It was a large town and it was being rapidly developed, but not a lot of what we would consider expat extras, like English speaking bookstores, cafes, that kind of thing. I think the closest store where I could buy an English language book was probably about two hours away in one of the tourist towns. And so every year we would come home for our leave. We would get a month of leave back in the States every year. And I had all my books in storage. And so I would bring some books home from Cambodia and then switch them out, like get some new ones to take back with me for the year to read. And sometimes if we traveled up to the capital, I would splurge and buy new books, you know, but they were really expensive because they were all imported in. And so that really turned me on to using 
the overdrive app for ebooks and audiobooks and all that because even though I was living overseas like you can still use your library card it's amazing <laughs> that I didn't have to pay for all of that and could access that so definitely did affect my impulsive buying of books because when I came back to the states books were everywhere they were very cheap and I might have gone just a little bit crazy in reacting to that <laughs> I can understand how that can happen. What a small world. I can't believe we've had two guests recently who've spent time in Cambodia. Were you surprised to hear her come on? I mean, you had the little hint, like a little clip from the previous week. And I had texted my husband like, oh my goodness, I mentioned Cambodia. That's crazy. And then in listening to her interview, I think I ended up messaging her because I actually follow her on Instagram before I messaged her before I even finished the episode because we were there about the same time period. She was in the capital city, but you know, I was somewhere else. I was like, I'm sure if we, if we went down enough layers, we would have common friends or, you know, places that we went and everything because the capital is not that big of a city. So yeah, it was really, really cool. And to have patients having from Kansas City. So it's like all these, <laughs> all this like the Venn diagram of overlapping interests. It's wonderful. <laughs> I love to hear that there are so many connections between book lovers. Mm -hmm. Whitney, I can totally understand how coming from that experience abroad and coming back to Kansas City and having all these books easily accessible for relatively little money compared to what you're used to. What did going overboard look like for you? So we moved back from Cambodia about four years ago. In that four years time, I have gone to a lot of library sales. We've lived five minutes away from a rainy day books. It was just amazing to be able to walk into a thrift store, say, and be able to buy a book for $3 or to walk into Barnes and Noble and have everything at my fingertips. Whereas before I couldn't really access that stuff so easily or even Amazon, you know, I could go on to Amazon and have anything I wanted within two days. And so I just slowly accumulated a lot of books. And if it looked interesting, I would get it. I feel like there's this rationalization of, well, it's books. It's somewhat into maybe a little intellectual. It's good. It's, it's not like I'm wasting money on something frivolous, but slowly those books really accumulated. And at the time, up until about six months ago, we were living in a very, very small 900 square foot house, two bedroom, no basement. And we literally did not own a television because I had my bookshelves my husband had his like keyboard and musical instruments and neither of us wanted to give those up. So we just didn't have a TV, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. So fast forward to a couple years ago, I kind of had this impulsive idea. I'm kind of a big ideas person that's like, I'm going to start a blog and an Instagram and then do all of these things. And then I got pregnant with our second kid which was planned. But then I realized like, what am I thinking? I don't have, to, I don't have time for this, but I kept the Instagram account because I realized I, I really enjoy taking the photos and interacting with everyone on there. And something that I had kind of played with was, and I just called it the unread shelf project was talking about how I wanted to really read the books that I had on my shelf instead of just buying more and more and more, because I, I realized also for myself, I also used it like they joke, we jokingly call it bibliotherapy, but you know, you feel kind of bummed, go buy a book. You're celebrating something, go buy a book. You have a bonus from work, go buy a book, which is wonderful. But then it's like, I have so many books and how in the world am I ever going to read all of them if I just keep buying more? So in January of this year, then I kind of decided to just launch it and 
just call it the Enred Shelf Project 2018 and really focus on doing that in the coming year with my reading. Have you found that other people resonate with your unread shelf situation? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's been really interesting seeing and reading people's reactions to when I launched the project. When I did in January, like, let's all do this. I thought there might be a few dozen people who would jump on board. And instead, I got dozens and dozens of direct messages every day and people saying, like, I have the same problem. And then one of the first things I asked I, you know, kind of said, let's all do this together was let's all just count our unread books and let's see how many we have. Because if you if you don't know how many you own, then it's kind of hard to know where to go from that. And people's numbers weren't so interesting as much as their reaction to saying, oh, I had no idea that I owned this many books that I haven't read because they're all over the house. And people realizing like, oh, I bought this book two years ago and it looked amazing. Why haven't I read it yet? So I really enjoyed seeing people as well as myself discovering really good books that are on their shelf that they kind of had forgotten about because they got shoved to the back and then being able to go back and read those and really enjoy them. What is your number, Whitney? (laughs) My number uh, right now is 165. And what was it when you started? 176. How long has this project been in progress? Really just since January. Okay. So I, and, and it was really interesting. I think the highest number that I saw come through of people who had counted their unread books was 700. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think in their post, they kind of said, I'm like not even going to do this project. There's no point. But here, I've counted my books. I'm like, wow, good. How long did it take you to count that many books? <laughs> Anne, do you know your number? Well, yes and no. My new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, has an essay in it called What I Need is a Deadline. (laughs) And one of the lingering fact check little researchy tasks I needed to do before I finally um, turned my book in was to count the number of unread books on my shelves. So at the time I turned in my manuscript, I had 114. However, To do that, I had to limit myself because I could have had like 300 unread books yesterday, but then eight more came in the mail, which is a lot. That is a lot to come in the mail on any one day, but it just so happened that eight books came in the mail yesterday. So that number is constantly in flux. And then I have several copies of some books. So what I decided to do was to count the number of unread unread books on the shelves of my home library, just in one specific room in the house, Mm. not the boxes of books that are on their way out the door to the little free library or the ones hanging out for work or the like researchy kind of books that I intend to read, but haven't yet that are piled up around my desk. I thought I'm never going to be able to count them up. I'm afraid I might be like that person with 700, although I don't think they're quite that many. So home library, 114 at that moment in time. What's the range you've heard of people's unread books? I think most people fall between one and 200 and that's kind of the serious book people. And also some people, it's interesting seeing their reactions because some people will say, oh my word, I have 50 unread books. That's so many. And then there's others who say, oh, I have 200. That's cool. I'm okay with that number. And so I think it's not so much about the number, but it's about, are they still even books that you want to read? One of the challenges that we did was physically look at them, Marie Kondo them as far as 
physically touching them, but please don't rip pages out (laughs) because I'm sorry, like Marie Kondo must just not be a book person because book person would never say something ridiculous like that, but take it out, you know, look at it. And then do you actually still want to read this? And if not, just get rid of it. Like no guilt. So I'm guessing you don't agree with her firm assertion that the right time to read a book is when you bring it into your home. And if you don't read it, then you're never going to read it and you should get rid of it right now. So I agree with a little bit of that statement from Marine Kondo. I do think that there's some sort of momentum with when you first buy a book, you have that high level of excitement. There's a reason you bought it. Either someone gave it to you or recommended it to you. It's a new author you love or a new book by an author you love. And you have that momentum of wanting to read that. And let's say you put it on your shelf and say, I'll get to it next week. And then a library hold comes in and then you order, you know, another book and then a new release comes in. You've been wanting to read and you kind of lose that. It loses its shiny, you know, sheen. (laughs) It's kind of redundant, but (laughs) it it loses its sheen and it, it doesn't seem quite as attractive. And I think also you get used to seeing it on your shelf and it's just so easy to forget about those books. One of our challenges, we kind of have these monthly challenges with the Unread Shelf Project of no pressure, but if you want to jump on this and do it. Uh, One of the challenges was to actually read the last book that you acquired. And people were, it was just really interesting because they said, oh, this is such a relief because this is almost like a guilty pleasure because I have so many other books that have been on my shelf for a lot longer and I just bought this one, but then I feel guilty for reading it because I feel I should read the other books first. It's like, no. So we're like tapping into that. No, no, you just bought it. Just read it and then make that a habit of reading that book quickly after you acquire it. I can see that there's two ways to bring that number down. You can either read them or you can just move them on out of your house. Mm -hmm. Have you, how many times have you gone for the latter option? I wish I'd kept track. I mean, there's some people that do really great monthly updates and they say, this is how many I DNF'd or got rid of, how many I finished, et cetera. I think I've probably gotten rid of at least a couple dozen books and I have a really hard time finishing books that I don't like. And so if I start it and I'm just not feeling it, then I'm just going to like move it on, give it to the little free library, take it to half price books or whatever. And that's actually part of the, some of the monthly challenges we do. We have different themes, like for example, read the last book you acquired this month, or you have to get rid of it. So it's giving you that deadline of actually finishing the book. I think that's why library books are sometimes read more frequently because you have that deadline of, I need to finish it by this date or else I'll go back to number 300 on the hold list. Yeah, that is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea how many? How many I've gotten rid of? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's like at least over 20. And some books were, you know, gifts. And then I kind of have a f- hard time giving those away because I feel bad. But like, I'm sorry, there's just some genres I'm not going to read. Anything about privileged Manhattan socialites. Like I tried reading Fitness Junkie and got about 30 pages in. And I was like, I can't, I just can't read about rich people and their problems. At that time, I had just finished a whole bunch of books on like racial justice. And so... I got to that one. I was like, I just can't go there. <laughs> hey, you have 165 books that you want to read. You got to narrow yeah. it down somehow. I know. Don't read the books that make you roll your eyes. That sounds like a good plan to me. Although I did just meet Joe Piazza at a book signing and she was lovely. 
Oh, I'm sure. Because I read reviews and like her book, they said like it was satirical. It was, it got to the point at the end where they did say all this stuff is ridiculous, but I didn't really need to read a book about that because I already knew You can read other things. Totally fine. I'm an Enneagram 8, so I'm very black and white about what I like and I have no problem kind (laughs) of saying like, I don't like this or this is, I don't know, being very, um, opinionated, I guess. (laughs) Whitney, when you sent in your form, which I was delighted to see at it's from what should I read next podcast.com slash guest, you said that you were entrusting me with a special responsibility in your unread shelf project. So I do have a list of all my books. There's this great app called book buddy. I don't work for them, whatever you, you know, they're just, it's a great, great app. So I decided I wanted to catalog all of my unread books to avoid that problem of, you know, being somewhere and do I own this? I'm going to buy it anyways. It also categorizes them by if they're unread or not. I was able to actually send you that list of all of my unread books. I would love for you to look at that list and kind of pick some recommendations for me based off that, which is kind of ironic because a lot of the books are ones I bought because I heard about them from your podcast. (laughs) It's sort of like I put them on the list. I take them off the list. I know. So it's sort of like you helped me make the long list. And now I want you to give me my, you know, my finalists of what books I definitely need to get to based on kind of what I'm looking for. So I am up for the challenge. Let's hear three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now from your unread shelf. And we will narrow this thing down. Thank you. I need all the help I can get. So. <laughs> One of the first books that I love is by one of my all-time favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. And the book that I chose for this was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I just recently finished reading The Chronicles of Narnia, the whole series, for the I'm pretty sure for the first time. Because I remember reading some of the first books when I was a kid and in middle school. But I don't think I went back and read the entire series. And Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I just loved because it's an adventure story. It's light enough reading. You can get through it pretty quickly. But the story has so much deep spiritual allegory to it as far as how he takes the dragon that Eustace becomes and being stuck in the darkness surrounding the dark island and trying to get to the end of the world to Aslan's country. All of these things that kids can read this book and enjoy it for the narrative drive. And then adults can read it and understand kind of what he's trying to say about the spiritual life. And and if anyone's not familiar with the Narnia series, Lewis created this alternate reality, this other world, this group of children would be transported to at certain times of need. It's just like a really great adventure story that I can't wait to read with my kids. Whitney, that's really interesting. I'm glad you enjoyed that series as an adult. What is another book that you really loved? Behind the Beautiful Forevers, Uh A Life, Death and Hope in a Mumbai Undercity by Catherine Boo. Not even sure where I first came across this, but Catherine Boo basically moved into a slum in Mumbai for about three years, and she has done a lot of investigative journalism type work in the past. In the intro, it says that she fell in love with an Indian man, and the man told her, don't take my country at his face value. She was drawn to this slum area that was right up against this incredibly wealthy, opulent hotel in Mumbai and and near the, I think, the international airport. And she goes in there and 
just becomes part of the fabric and life of the community. You know, at first people are wondering, why is this white woman here recording everything that we're doing? And then after a while, they just don't even notice that she's there. But the, the drive of the story is not her story. It's stories of the people that are living there. And it gives you this picture of life in a developing world that is so much more complex than the picture that we often get being here in the United States. Living in Cambodia, we worked alongside and, and lived alongside people who faced barriers to education and work. I realized through that experience that poverty is very, very complex and there's not one solution to that. And I think that Boo does a terrific job of sharing their stories in a way that shows layers of poverty. You know, you have a slum, but there's people who are at the top of the slum who maybe have, maybe they're teachers, maybe they're government officials who take bribes to make sure their kids can go get an education so that they can move upward in society. You have the trash collector at the very bottom who is doing a job that most Indians despise because it's dirty, yet he's making enough money to give his family a nicer home than everyone else. And maybe on top of that, they're Muslim in a very predominantly Hindu slum. And there's a history there that affects everyone's interactions. And I really love how Boo created this story as it's very narrative driven. You actually feel like you're immersed in that community with her, seen through the eyes of the people that she worked alongside. Um, you can't necessarily extrapolate that out to every slum in every developing country. But if you're wanting to just understand poverty more, I think this book is a really great place to start. Have you read this book? I have. And I'm listening with two ears. They're like, oh, yes, I remember this. It's been five years, but I remember this. And also, what does this mean about what is on your unread shelf? And what are we going to choose for you next? If, if you can't tell, like learning more about society and poverty and people's stories is really important to me, whether that's through fiction or through nonfiction like this book. What helps put people on a certain trajectory for their lives and what keeps them from moving out of poverty into a place where they're thriving? And part of that is just because of my work. I work for a children's hospital system here in Kansas City, but we have an outreach clinic that's at a homeless shelter for unaccompanied minors. Most homeless shelters, you can't have a 15-year-old staying there without their parent or legal guardian. They have to have someone with them. But we have two shelters here in town where whether they're truly homeless, in between foster care placements, they're having family conflict, they were removed from the home by DFS, whatever it is, they can come and stay there for up to a month. And then our clinic provides medical care, whatever they need, you know, mental health, vaccines, what have you. And so I work with a lot of these youth that are facing pretty horrible things and have had really adverse events in their past. And I only get them for like 30 minutes. And I always want to try to understand their stories more, where they're coming from, anything that helps me to understand that better so that I can do my job better in taking care of them. Mm -hmm. And yet I know what your third book is. <laughs> yes. The Likeness by Tana French. Tell me about it. So I found this book at a garage sale a few years ago, and I probably heard about Tana from your podcast and decided to give her a go. I have always been a huge mystery lover. I think Agatha Christie was my middle grade fiction as far as that's where I camped out in middle school. I just loved all of her books and then moved on to, to other things. But I was just looking at my genre page because I, in my reading journal, I track the genres that I read throughout the year. And so mystery is always like the biggest chunk of my reading. So The Likeness by Tana French, it is part of her 
Dublin Squad murder series. And it has this agent who, in the previous book, had some really traumatic events happen in terms of investigating a different murder. She was a secondary character in that novel. But in the likeness, we actually dive into more of her backstory. She is pulled off of the murder squad She's put into investigating small crimes when suddenly she gets a call and is told to come out to a murder scene. And she stares down at a woman who looks almost exactly like her, completely her doppelganger. And detectives investigating the mystery say, well, you used to be an undercover cop and now we're going to put you back in undercover, put you back where this woman was living. Because not only does she look like Cassie, she also has an identity card with the name of the undercover identity that Cassie had been using in years past. So there's just a whole bunch of unanswered questions. Cassie moves into this house with several other postgrads, immerses herself in their world. And as she's going along, trying to understand who these people are, what their relationships and connections are, you can see her slowly getting absorbed into their world, her relationships with the people affecting her judgment of the situation, the line between her and the undercover identity blurring. And what I love about French is besides the fact that she's gritty, that she is psychologically really intense, she takes you into the minds of the detectives as they're investigating this murder and shows you what that experience does to them psychologically. In every book that she has, it's through the eyes of a different detective. It's, it's not just a police procedural book. But she's actually helping you understand the impact of that investigation on them and the mistakes they make. You can almost like sit back and cringe saying, oh, no, Cassie, don't do that. (laughs) But you also understand because you're hearing her thoughts. Well, I really like Tana French and I'm always excited to hear that somebody else does, too. So I'm glad you found her. Have you read the whole series? Yes, I have. And I'm already on the library holds list for her new book. So (laughs) Whitney, what's a book you're not so crazy about? And help me narrow it down. Like I mentioned before, I have a really hard time finishing books I don't like. And so I had a hard time finding one that I'd actually finished that I could talk about in a, I felt like a more informed way. But last year I read Since We Fell by Dennis Lehane. I've never read Dennis Lehane before. I think one time I tried to watch the movie Shutter Island and had to walk out, couldn't handle it. Since We Fell, it's kind of billed as everything. I swear they just took every sort of exciting genre title and threw it in a bucket. It's, you know, a drama, psychological thriller, an action, a mystery. But it opens up as this woman who has a traumatic event happen to her when she's a reporter and ends up as a recluse. And then she meets this man who's seen... Okay, well, I'll try not to give too many spoilers, but it's hard to discuss why I dislike this book without giving away at least some of the plot. So she meets this man who appears wonderful, helps her kind of rebuild her life, and then she discovers a secret about him that destroys everything. So you have one half of a book, which is sort of hiding away in her house and not having a great life and then meeting this guy and there's a bit of romance and it's all wonderful. Then there's another part of the book where she's uncovering these dark secrets and trying to figure out who her husband really is and what her life really is and all these things. And then the last part just feels like an action film mashup. Let's just throw a whole bunch of chase scenes in, have people shoot at each other, people die, this happens, page turner, twisty thriller. And then at the end, it just ends really abruptly 
There's not a lot of resolution and it's just completely unsatisfying. I really disliked how disjointed the narrative felt. I really didn't like Rachel, the main character. Maybe it's my Enneagram 8 that I, I dislike. <laughs> I don't like weak characters. I felt like she didn't stand up for herself. I'm okay with the colorful language. I mean, Tana French has a lot of colorful language, but... In this book, it also got to a point where I'm like, get a thesaurus out for crying out loud. Like, can you find any other descriptive term that is not four letters and a swear word? There was just not any sort of like rich writing or or dialogue or anything. It just kind of, it felt exactly like an action film. Like he had written this to be turned into an action film. And luckily I don't think anyone's touched it. I just <laughs> really did not like this book, but I did finish it. So there's that. I started this book and just didn't care. Didn't get past page 50. Yeah. You're not, you're not making me change my mind. Although the reviews on this are incredible. All the critics loved it. <sighs> It's not that critics are never wrong, but I just find it really interesting when I read rave reviews and don't feel like I'm reading the same book that that review is about. Mm-mm. Like, what are they praising exactly? Like, yes, it was exciting. I read it very quickly. It was a page turner, but there was just no depth. Like, there was no quality. There was just nothing to love about this story. And I'm not a huge fan of, I guess, contemporary fiction. Do you know what I mean by contemporary? Maybe more like commercial fiction. This felt kind of commercialized to me and I just was not a fan. I think I know what you mean. So you clearly like books with strong narrative drive. You like action. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell that from the books that you've read and the books I can see on your beautiful Instagram accounts. But you also like symbolism and layers of meaning and you want something happening to anchor that story. Exactly. Do you feel like that was missing here? Absolutely. Because there was no redemption. I'm, I'm okay with having a sad story. I mean, if you read Behind the Beautiful Forevers, you will bawl your eyes out. Like a lot of the books I read are really sad. Um, but there has to be a redemptive theme in there, a light, because I'm not a Pollyanna, but I do believe that there's redemption and hope. You can always find that in a, somewhere. And in this story, there was just nothing. Her life is still ruined. So... Okay. So you don't want the, you want the ruin to happen in the middle if there's ruin and not on the last page. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking, but, but no also, ruin would be better. I mean, I just finished reading with when breath becomes air mm -hmm. and I loved it. I mean, the end is horrible, but there is like meaning to the story mm -hmm. and there's redemption in there. And the same with, I think, like I'm looking back, like what's the difference between the likeness and since we fell? Like maybe on the surface, those books do seem very similar. They're, they're thrillers, they're action driven, they're psychological. But I love how French actually dives down into Cassie's character and she's still processing events from the previous book from In the Woods and it's affecting how she's living right now. You can see her grappling with that and tackling that and processing that throughout everything that happens through the book. Whereas I feel that Rachel and since we fell these things are just happening to her she's just reacting to them she's just letting herself be acted upon where it, and not really taking initiative and responsibility for her own story does that make sense 
Yeah. Okay. So you want characters with agency and I can feel the difference better than I explain it. When you talk about the difference between since we fell and the likeness. And I want to say that the likeness just has so much texture, but does that really mean anything when you're, when you're talking about a book, I'm not talking about the deckled edges. Mm -hmm. There's layer upon layer of story and meaning and the relationships the characters are grappling with. Just like you said, you liked um, Deborah Crombie. I know I've seen Mm -hmm. Louise Penny in your feed. Like there is more happening in those books than the suspense. Yep. I kind of need it all. I'm really demanding of my books. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's good for a reader to have high standards. Whitney, what are you reading right now? So right now I'm reading Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And I'm, I was really excited because I had no idea that this book, I'm not giving away anything here, but the Eleanor's background was so traumatic and that she had like a foster care background because Another book I almost put on my favorites list was The Language of Flowers. Oh, I was just wondering if you had read that. Oh, yes. my goodness. Bald my, I mean, I cried my whole way because because I'm working with these types of youth. And I think Eleanor Oliphant also is like helping me understand kind of where they're coming from. And The Language of Flowers is amazing because Vanessa Diffenbaugh, the author, was a foster care parent. So she's writing like she wasn't a foster care youth herself, but she is writing from her experience of living with kids who have been through really traumatic backgrounds and had this. So Eleanor, I'm, I'm loving. It's so funny. Again, it's, it's, you know, from the UK. So I get into that. Uh, I'm also reading The Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever read the, read the whole series before. And so it's sort of my nighttime read. I just get into a chapter and I'm not rushing myself. For me, normally I want to read a book in a week or less. Um, otherwise I lose interest, but I'm allowing myself to kind of savor that one. My other nighttime listen is the 100 year old man who climbed out the window and disappeared by Mm -hmm. Jonas Jonasson. This is probably the fifth time I've listened to this book. The narration is so funny. The story is kind of absurd. I just love the humor in it. And it's one of those outliers of not really like the other books that I read, but I really enjoy the dry humor and the history in it. So And the characters are just so well drawn. So, yeah. All right. That. (laughs) Were those helpful or made it more confusing, more complicated? (laughs) Oh, no. More is always better. Good. Because it brings to light different aspects of, of a reader's reading life. And I'd love to hear yours. And I, I'm wondering if Jonas Jonasson is really such an oddball as all that. I haven't read anything else by him, but I probably would enjoy that. So. He has a very consistent tone. And so you love social justice books and books that tackle serious issues and, you know, medical angles and foster care. I imagine that you wouldn't want to read 27 of those nonstop. So it's interesting to hear what you like to mix it up with. And I will definitely keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. I always am wanting to throw another mystery novel in there. That's like my palate cleanser, my in-between, my... What I will revert to is because it's so satisfying because most books... Unless you read in the woods, but most books, like, <laughs> I know how this sentence is going to end. Okay. Yeah. You start them, you have a problem and you fix it and it's black and white. You know, I like clear cut conclusion done. I'm okay with like the overarching narratives, like in Louise Penny, they have things unanswered and so it just makes you want to read the next book. Because I think also talking about social issues, I have a strong sense of justice and right or wrong. And I just want to see them nail the bad guy. Extremely satisfying for me. So that's good to know about yourself. 
Okay, I was going to start in one place, but now I'm going to start with another. Since you've referenced your personality and your Enneagram type like a dozen times, I noticed <laughs> that Reading People by Ann Vogel is on this list. Oh my, I think so you might enjoy that. No, no, no. Don't be embarrassed. You have 165 <laughs> books you haven't read. Don't be embarrassed. But you even sent it to me. I want it in a giveaway from you. Oh, and that was I very nice of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just so, I was like, oh, she's going to see. I haven't read it yet. Maybe your time is now. Okay. The other place I was thinking about starting our whole conversation, Whitney, I've been hemming and hawing thinking like, Oh, you would love this book. Whoa. Whoa. No. Okay. The other thing I was going to say, as far as what I want to be different is I want you to throw me a bone and recommend me at least. Well, let's say two books from my unread list because you know, unread shelf project hashtag, but also I want one book that I have an excuse to go out and buy. (laughs) I have, I'm going to celebrate being on this podcast. I have a gift card burning a hole in my pocket. And one of the, my goals at the beginning of the year, as far as reading goals was to like be intentional about my book buying and plan it out. And I was like, this is a very good excuse for me to go buy not three books because let's have some self-control here, but like one book. So yes, please recommend me at least one book that I can go out and buy tomorrow. (laughs) You got it. I mean, I feel like you're putting me firmly in the role of enabler, but. No, the project is not about, well, for some people we could talk about abstainers versus moderators. Thank you, Gretchen Rubin. Um, you know, some people have just completely sworn off buying. I'm more, re- I'm realistic in that it's something I do enjoy. And I'm, I actually enjoy it more when I'm, it was for my birthday. And then it was the library book sale. And now it will be the book that you recommended for me. You know, just one though. Okay. Time out to say, I really feel like there's a lot of freedom in your project because you're not just trying to read books that you are going to 100% love, which isn't necessarily a reading goal I'd choose for anybody's life long-term for Mm -hmm. like this weekend. Sure. But like long-term only wanting to read books you love, that's a lot of pressure. And how Mm -hmm. do you, I am afraid that wouldn't like lead you to take risks, but your idea is to read it find out if it's for you. And if it's not to move on. So whether you love it or don't, you can move on. Whether you drop it in the little free library or shout from the rooftops Mm -hmm. that this is your new lifelong favorite book, you can knock that number down one and move on with your life. Mm -hmm. Okay. I feel like I'm protesting too much. All right. The 13th tale, Diane Setterfield. That's what (gasps) I'm thinking. Yes. Yes. You do have it. It's on your list. Okay. So here's what it's got going for it. It's got a little psychological intrigue. First of all, for readers who don't necessarily share your taste, this is a book about people who love books, who sell them and write them. And Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a book about bibliophiles and book-loving people like to read books about book-loving people. It's a mystery. It's set in England. It's about a British novelist who has been very secretive about her mysterious past, but now she's getting older and she's ready to spill all her secrets. But she has handpicked one particular antiquarian bookshop owner's daughter, who is a fledgling biographer who does not have much experience, who is very young. There is no reason this woman who uh, is described in the book by the journalist is something like our centuries Dickens. I mean, talk about setting the bar high. 
why would, why would she talk to this girl? There's no reason. But of course there's a reason. And over the course of the book, you know, by the end, you are going to find out what it is. And the title is also really cool. So it's called The 13th Tale. And that title comes from the manuscript itself because this woman, her name is Winters, Vita Winters. But her famous old rare work is called 13 Tales of Change and Desperation. But the collection only has 12 stories. For years, readers thought, ooh, isn't this just a delightful little mystery? Isn't this a fun little wink, wink, nod, nod? Isn't she hinting at the nature of things? But no, there is a 13th tale. And the biographer, by the end of the story, is going to pull it out of her. And it's all going to come together in weird ways. And I think you're going to enjoy it. How have I never heard it described like that before? I don't know. But, 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 (laughs) unless you don't, because even though... Even though in the text, the author is compared to Dickens. I mean, talk about setting the bar high. It's not as wordy as Dickens. But when you set up a comparison like that, you're definitely inclined to maybe to notice the gap or the difference, the difference. And I wouldn't want to be compared to Dickens or Austin or any of those guys myself. Um, And it's a little, uh, there's a couple lines that are just a little bit graphic and uh, they go just a little darker than I would like. And there's some themes that go a little bit darker, but I think on the whole, you're going to enjoy this. No, I think that sounds great. And I've never read Dickens, so that comparison will go completely over my head. I just won't care about it. (laughs) So this summer on the blog, we did Confess Your Literary Sins, and some people shared theirs on Instagram, and some people left blog comments that said, this is the thing about my reading life that I kind of keep a secret because I'm worried that other people would judge me about it. I think people feel like guilty, and I wish they wouldn't, because when you start talking to other people about these things you're embarrassed about, about your reading life, you find out that you have so much company, and it's so much more fun to just talk about those things. And that's something I had to really like harp on when I was first sharing about the Unread Shelf Project was like, you guys, I'm not doing this to shame you, to guilt trip you into getting rid of your books or to like, you know, wearing sackcloth and ashes because you buy a new book every week. Like let's actually slow down and just enjoy books. Like maybe stop always looking for the next book high, you know, there's like FOMO of just completely that fear of missing out that I think Instagram does drive a lot. You're always seeing new books and the book that everyone else is reading and you don't want to miss out on a great story. But then if you don't actually read the story, then like, what's the point? Yes. And I think another big part of it is that when you see people sharing about books, particularly publicly, but not privately, like on social media or on the internet, People don't talk about the books that they don't enjoy or they don't like. And so Mm -hmm. if you read a book and you don't understand what all the fuss is about, you really do feel like the only one. So you think, what am I not getting here? Did this Mm -hmm. go over my head? Like, am I, am I not good enough to read this book? And that's not, it's just, it's incomplete information. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that you should go trashing the books you don't like on social media, but I am saying that it's nice to have other book lovers to talk to because they will make you feel like you are not alone. And if you feel guilty for not reading a book, like it will still exist in book world somewhere on the internet. Like you can still buy it and get it when you're ready to read it. I think that's another thing we feel like, oh my gosh, I have to read it right now or I have to go buy it right now. But it's like when you're ready to read it, it'll still be out there. The library will probably have a copy. So it's okay. Just focus on reading and enjoying like what's right in front of you. And if you're not enjoying it, throw it out. Exactly. All right. We are moving in a different direction with this next one from your unread shelf. I would really love to see you move The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Ann Fadiman up your list. 
How did this end up on your shelf, Gina? Well, it's one of those books that like all medical people should read. And I actually bought it at a medical missions conference because they had copies that were signed by the author because she had presented at the previous year's conference. So of course, like it's signed by the author. I have to buy it. It's been on my shelf for probably three years. I'm embarrassed. Okay, literary sin there. I'm using shame language. (laughs) I'm embarrassed. I haven't read it yet. Well, I think based on what you like, this book has so much going for it. It's a nonfiction narrative that reads like a novel. It's by an author who is skilled at telling a good story. And if you've never read anything else by her, she has also written books like Ex Libris, Confessions of an Ordinary Reader. And I just picked up a book at a Cincinnati bookstore called Rereadings, which I believe might be an essay collection she edited and not something that she wrote all 300 pages of herself. But she's a book person. She's fun to read. So since I read Ex Libris first, I was really surprised to find out about this book. She wrote this as a journalist. And yeah, what I like about this for you is it's uh, medicine, Southeast Asia. This story centers on a child and what she has to American doctors is a seizure disorder. She has some kind of epilepsy, but that's not how the Hmong people interpret her illness. They see it as something different. So the clashing of cultures over how this child should be treated, the responsibility the doctors feel, what the parents think is right for their child based on everything they've ever known, the common misperceptions about what one should do in such a situation, the tensions there are the focus of this book. And I think with your background, so many aspects of your background, there's so much in this book that you will find fascinating, not just because it's a good story, but because it's tailor-made to probe your interests. This story sounds like what I lived in Cambodia for three years because our medical clinic was working with the Cambodian people. And like Chatty talked about on the previous episode about Cambodia, I mean, an entire generation was wiped out. And educational system, government system, like infrastructure, everything was just completely destroyed. And the people there are amazing and so resilient. But all the things that we take for granted, like health literacy and the ability to understand your body and its illness and how it works just doesn't exist for a lot of people there. And we were constantly coming up against what people believed was the underlying cause of their illness and what we as Westerners believed was causing their illness. And how do you how do you get those two to meet in the middle? How do you help them understand their own own, own bodies while we needed to understand the reality that they were living in as far as their their cultural beliefs and understandings. And so I can't believe I haven't read this yet. Again, it's probably just sat on my shelf and I get so immune to seeing the title there that I forget why I bought it in the first place. I hear you because you have it in your house. You could read it anytime. Mm-hmm. Anytime never happens. It never comes. So I hear you. Okay. I also do want to throw in there for this book that it is often difficult and frustrating and sad to read, but there is a strong thread of hope. And I like that for you. I need that. Oh, but oh, now I get to, now I get to talk about a book that is new. All right. I'm thinking Marisa de Los Santos. I'll be your blue sky. Do you know anything about it? Hmm. 
I have not read this title. I've just seen it. So tell me about it. You may know her from Love Walked In, Belong to Me. Those are previous books that are in a very loose series, but it's kind of like Tana French. You can start anywhere. The characters are the same. The ones at the center kind of rotate through, but you do not need to read those first. I like this for you because it has a easy breezy story that you could like, you could take to the beach. You could read it super fast. You would enjoy it. Like it would keep moving for you, but there's also a lot going on beneath the surface, both in the individual lives of these characters. They're working out their relationships and what they want out of life and where, what they will do at these turning points they find themselves facing. But there's also an underlying theme of domestic violence. I don't think there's any other way to put it. There are two storylines in this book and it goes back and forth in time between right now when a young woman is deciding not to marry her boyfriend who scares her because of his erratic behavior. And one of the ways that comes out is uh, how he feels very possessive of her. And I won't share this specific anecdote, but throughout the book, there are so many references to books and reading that are just really, really fun for book lovers. Mm. This modern day storyline is connected to a past storyline with a woman who participated in a relocation system is what they called it. Um, It was called Blue Sky House. She ran this house that was a bed and breakfast, but also varied women fleeing domestic abuse in their homes. But the law would not intervene in the 1950s when this past storyline was set. This woman, Edith's role was to help women move undetected from one safe house to another to flee to a different place where they could create a new life with a new name far from everyone they'd ever known or to even flee the country for the fresh start they needed if they were literally going to survive. So I like how this story is such a warm, fun story to read, but I mean, she is not messing around. There is serious stuff going on in this book and I know that you like that. Mm, okay, now you've sold me because I read, I think it's belonged to me about the single mom and the boy that moves to a town and kind of gets to know a certain family. Is that the right one I'm thinking of? Yes, it totally is. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So, I know it's so those really are vague. some of the same characters. So that book I read like, oh, it was good. It was sort of, it was interesting. I think it was like a kind of a three star. It was fine. So I think that's why when I see her name pop up, I tend to be a bit meh. But with you describing this new book, I'll be your blue sky. That Now that sounds really interesting because these are the kind of families that we often work with. And now I'm really intrigued to read that book. I think she steps it up in this new book. It came out this past spring, like in February or March. I'm also just going to say there's a new audio version of Sense and Sensibility on your list narrated by Rosamund Pike. And I know... Uh Uh-huh. I listened to... That's my other can't sleep audiobook I listened to is her Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. Like I probably listened to it a dozen times. This is new. I was very excited to see the news that it was out. I don't want to overload you with like 40... What? You're not overloading me. They're on my (laughs) shelf already. I'm not going to have to go out and buy them. (laughs) I don't want to put books on your list that you'll still be reading four months from now. I I mean, momentum is not bad. Whitney, of those titles we talked about, what do you think you will read next? I think I'm going to have to tackle when the spirit catches you and you fall down because I don't have a nonfiction going right now. And I generally like to have a nonfiction and fiction going. So I'm going to go pull that off my shelf because it's right there. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. You get to start right away because they're right there. I know. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Whitney and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 158 and it's where you'll see the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, I'm chatting with Shantae Hopkins about how she takes Jane Austen fandom and other literary interests to a new immersive level. We're talking history lessons, gorgeous costumes, and fancy balls complete with live music. Here's a sneak peek. Did you just like go and snoop and check it out like I did? Or were you like full on head to toe Regency dress? Yeah, I appreciate the people in Regency dress. That's part of the reason why I like to go. It really helps to bring the period to life. I did tell one of my book club friends that next year would be the year that I do it and go full Regency attire. And I may even dance at the ball. I don't know. (laughs) Have you been to the ball? This year was my first year going to the ball. All right. Paint the picture for us. It's great. You don't have to be in Regency dress. I, you know, I wore a maxi dress to just blend in with everybody. There's someone calling the dance. I think that's what you call it. Some people have rehearsed and then some people are like me, you know, stumbling <laughs> over their feet a little bit. But and then, you know, it's odd. There are a dozen or so people standing around, you know, holding up iPhones, Instagramming. So it's, <laughs> you're trying to, you know, get into the, the mood. But then you're reminded that we're still in 2018. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing wherever you listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, Overcast, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Vogel. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at What Should I Read Next and at Ann Vogel. Get all the latest What Should I Read Next news and updates by signing up for our free weekly newsletter at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply 
all night long.